Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're walking home alone at night. The streets are empty, unlike your thoughts. Those are racing, wondering what you'll see or hear, hoping you remain alone until you're able to unlock your front door, but then you hear it. And you know she is coming. Teke Teke. She's missing her bottom half, and yet she's faster than you, and she's about to rip you apart. Tune in to the Freaky Folklore Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or EerieCast.com to hear more of the terror that is the Japanese urban legend Teke Teke. Links in the description. Cryptids, or strange and unknown creatures, are the stuff of intrigue and nightmares. Forget your place in the food chain for long, and you'll be swiftly reminded of it when you stumble upon a beast that defies current human understanding. YouTuber and narrator Zach Baby TV joins me today in reading these stories. Be sure to check out and subscribe to his channel, link in the description. Remember, you can share your stories with me at darkstories.org. I'd love to narrate stories about anything outdoors or trucker related. Now, let's begin. Nature doesn't belong to us. From Love is Blue. My story takes place in 2006. I'm a little older now, but the memories are still as vivid as yesterday. I believe it was mid-November. My partner at the time, Tasha, and I were lovers of nature. It was what enabled us to get along so well. She was the only person I've ever met who could enjoy the peace of being out, away from the city, surrounded by nothing but trees, hills, and animals, without letting the many variables of our lives distract us from the natural wonder. Of course, we loved hiking. We were situated in the perfect area for it too. We were both from Estes Park. I'm sure it's a lot different now but back then it was the most quaint, lovely town you could know, surrounded almost entirely by the beautiful forests of the Rockies. We were on a hike like any other. I remember it was the first snowfall of that winter, which is always something to cherish in northern Colorado. Tasha loved the snow too. She was adamant about us getting out to experience it. And I obliged. That day, we took our regular route, a path just big enough for a bicycle or two that sloped up the foothills of the Rockies before it merged with the coyote paths that ran between the smaller mountain peaks. 
One thing I do recall about our hike that day was that there was a peculiar smell in the air. It was reminiscent of how the air smells right before a thunderstorm, like static and ozone. Typically, snow clouds don't bring that kind of air with them. I think it was the afternoon, because the sky was just a little dark, still bright enough to safely see where we were going. Tasha was ecstatic about the snow, and to be fair, so was I. We were about a kilometer in, and everything was going fine. Then, the next moment, I became nauseous. It was very sudden, I lost my balance too. I had to lurch over onto my knees so I didn't fall. Tasha grew concerned. As she asked what was wrong, I just sat there. The nausea wasn't really in my stomach, more so my whole body. It almost felt as if gravity intensified. I took a deep breath, and that's when I realized that static electricity smell was heavier than it was before. After a few seconds, I was able to stand back up. After I told her I was okay, she asked me if I wanted to go back home. I said no, because I felt fine once again, and I didn't want to ruin the special day for her but I did ask her if she could smell the weird odor. She took a big whiff and then told me she couldn't. So we moved on. The snowfall intensified as we walked. The flakes still weren't cold enough to stick to the ground, but it did obscure our vision. Our range of view became more and more limited as time wore on. We were caught up in the snowfall, and each other though, so we were too busy to notice. Plus, we knew the path so well, when it became clear that we couldn't see no more than 20 feet in front of us, we didn't mind, because we knew exactly where we were. We were having an amazing time until that wave of nausea hit me again. It was less intense this iteration. I didn't topple over, and I didn't need to tell her, but I could still feel it. I worried it might be an underlying health issue, or something like that. I wasn't a young man after all. As I theorized internally as to what might be causing it, something caught Tasha's eye. She tugged at my sleeve to get my attention. Who's that? Looking up the trail, I could barely make out a human figure. They were around six feet tall, I'd say. They were walking very slowly in the same direction we were. It was snowing heavily at that point, but our town was full of avid hikers, so it wasn't too strange. I don't know. I responded. We looked at them for a few moments, and as we did, we began to notice they weren't moving. They were walking, sure, but they weren't going anywhere. It was as if they were walking in place. What the heck are they doing? It became clear Tasha was a little unnerved. So was I. I decided to call out to them. Hey! hey. As soon as I did, they dissipated into the snowstorm. It was so strange. There were no clear movement indicators. It was like they themselves had turned into snowflakes. We both saw the figure vanish 
and despite being confused, we were eager to get out of there as quickly as we could. Even though the air was cold and crisp with snow, I could still make out that static smell, and my nausea was strong, but consistent enough so that I could keep my balance. We didn't talk much as we made our way back down the trail. We were familiar with one another, enough so to know that we would save the rationalization for after we got home. Maybe 50 feet from where we saw the figure, something else happened. Michael? I kept walking as I heard my name. Yeah? I said, hurriedly. Tasha looked at me confused. Mm, what is it? I asked. What are you talking about? You just said Michael. We stopped momentarily and faced each other. Tasha said something along the lines of, I... I didn't say anything. I was about to argue that she did until, from behind us, we both heard it. Louder this time and more. Frantic. Michael! The voice came from up the trail, Tasha's voice, but Tasha was right in front of me. The woman up the path kept speaking. Michael, where are you? The nausea I felt grew stronger. Something was very, very wrong here. Tasha was scared too. Let's get the heck out of here. I nodded as the voice kept calling out. Then I realized I could see a figure again, just barely. It seemed to be pacing back and forth as it repeated my name. Let's go, now. Tasha began pulling me by the hand down the path. As I turned to follow her, though, I noticed something off. The geometry of it was wrong. It was making a sharp turn into a thicket of trees. Yeah, it was snowing hard, but I knew for a fact this wasn't the way we came up. I stopped dead, looking around, and confirming that this was not the path I was familiar with. Tasha turned back to face me, asking what the heck I was doing as I stood there, rooted. That's when I realized something else. Her hand was ice cold, and I don't mean the skin was cold. There wasn't any warmth whatsoever. Her grip made my hand even colder. It was like she was made of ice. As I looked at her frantically urging me to come down the path, her eyes glazed over. I don't really know how to describe it, but they weren't Tasha's eyes. They weren't pretty, they weren't full of life. It felt like making eye contact with a wax replica of her. She kept trying to pull me as the other voice kept calling my name, and I took the only course of action I saw fit. I shoved her. I shoved my partner of three years hard, causing her to fall backwards and roll a little down the hill. And then I took off, back up the path, to the voice calling out to me. Only a few big strides and I found her. Tasha, my Tasha. 
She was covered in snow, shivering a bit. She hugged me as soon as she saw me. Where have you been? I thought I lost you. As we touched, that nausea that was nagging me seemed to shrivel away. There was still that awful smell in the air, though. I took one last look back in the direction I came, and sure as anything, I saw a figure slowly walking up the hill. We gotta go. Let's go. My voice cracked from my nervousness. She took that as a sign of urgency and took my hand as I led her down the hill, almost in a sprint. Her hand, though, was cold, and it warmed mine up. Soon enough, we saw city lights. Finally getting off the trail and onto cement sidewalk was the most relieving feeling. We walked home, no longer rushing. She asked me a lot of questions regarding where I went and how I got away from her. In truth, I didn't know how to respond. I never told her about the other... Tasha, and I really don't know why. I was afraid she'd think I was crazy, I guess. Due to a lucrative job opportunity, we moved shortly after the event and have been situated in Denver ever since. We never did go back to that hiking trail. Even now, I still have so many unanswered questions. How could whatever it was have possibly slipped in between us? There was never a point where my eyes were off of her, and we never split up. And what was that peculiar smell? Why was I so darn sick? Maybe a very primal part of me, beyond my sense of logic, knew something was wrong. But I don't know. There is one thing I'm certain of, however... As much as humans like to pretend, nature doesn't belong to us. There are things out there that we can't understand. When I think back and remember making eye contact with that imposter, or whatever it was, I somehow know that if I chose to follow her, I wouldn't be alive to write this now. Stay safe, everyone. The Thing in Hawk Mountain, from Parker Cusk. I live in Briningsville, Pennsylvania. This story is about an experience I'll never forget. One day I had to go over with my mom to help shovel at my grandma's. Her house was right in front of a really well-known hiking mountain and falcon and hawk preserve. It's called Hawk Mountain. There was one trail that led up seven miles to the top. It was a gorgeous mountain, but not a lot happened there besides seeing hawks. There were a lot of them, after all. My grandma lived in a big townhouse right in front of the entrance to the trail. She was the usual cat lady. She had some stray cats always come from the trail to eat food she always left out for them. As it had snowed seven inches the night before, I had to shuffle a path for the cats to come up and eat. It was 6.30 when my mom drove me over to shovel. It was dark out, and the entrance of the trail was creepy as ever. The woods were always sketchy to me. 
but I didn't care. I mean, I was getting paid 60 bucks to do this. I was 14 at the time, so I was always down to make money. I shoveled up a good path for the cats. At one point, I was five feet away from the woods. I kept shoveling when I heard some rustling in the woods. It wasn't as dark in this area, so I was able to see a bit more, even though it was 7pm at that point. I just kept on working, just thinking it was a giant hawk or something. But then, I heard it. It was something that would be burned into my brain for the rest of my life. A deep growl. It wasn't the type of growl you get from a dog. It was dark and sounded like it came from something big. Something demonic. I jumped up and looked around until I could see it. I could see an arm and a hand wrapped around a tree. I could not see the body just yet, but I could see its urine-colored eyes. They stood out amidst the complete darkness of the woods, through which I struggled to see. I stared at it some more, and suddenly, it screamed. It was the most terrifying scream I'd ever heard. I dropped the shovel and ran into the house. I told my grandma and mom what happened, but they told me to stop screwing around, that it was time for dinner. After I ate, I went home, and I never knew what it was or what it wanted. I'll always remember the scream it made, that thundering growl too, and those eyes that stared me down. The following stories are Dogman Sighting Stories, read by Zack Baby TV. How many of you love to go camping? How many of you have never been camping or refuse to go camping or simply just don't like being outside? Everybody's different when it comes to the outdoors. I've been a pretty avid camper most of my life. The first time I ever went camping, I was eight years old in Yosemite with my mother and stepfather. We've been to the Sequoias, we've been camping down in Julian, and then later on, I spent a few years living in southern Florida. We did a camping thing there once too, but it just wasn't the same in all honesty. Which leads to tonight's story. We were camping in Florida. Even though Florida doesn't have any mountains or nothing like that, there's still plenty of woods to go around. My family and I were tent camping over at the Arcadia Peace River campground. This is in southwestern Florida. We were going to be there for just the weekend. My parents had taken that Friday off, and we were going to stay there until Sunday morning and, of course, pack up and head back home. We've been there before. There's a couple other campgrounds in the area, but this is the one that my family liked the most. A lot of people bring their RVs there, but my family are more the old-school tent type of campers. Some people like to do a little fishing. There's a little river out there. There's a swimming pool. There's plenty of places to go adventure off in the woods, and of course people like to ride their dirt bikes and quads. Me and my older brother would always like to venture off in the woods. Sure, we would spend time in the pool, things of that nature, but we like to just adventure off and get lost on purpose. We never did really truly get lost, but the last time that we went camping there, we almost did. It was after lunchtime, but it was before dinner. 
My dad said that he was going to be grilling up some burgers and hot dogs and to be back around 6. I don't really recall what we were doing that afternoon. I know the first day that we were there, we spent most of the time in the pool. But on the second day, before dinner, I think we were just exploring the woods. My older brother was 12 at the time and I was 10, so we were both pretty young, but I had a big stick with me, so I felt confident. My brother didn't have anything. He said there's nothing to worry about, but we still explored anyways. I just remembered the deeper that we went into the woods, the thicker everything became. From the brush, the twigs, the vines, everything, it became so compact we could barely move. We were snapping things on purpose, trying to create some kind of a trail as we went inside deeper into the woods. At least that way, we could just trail our way back by seeing all the damage we had caused. I know after a while, we were pretty deep in the woods at this point. I remember asking my brother, like, hey, should we just turn around so we don't go too deep? And he just said, no, there's so much of this place that we've never even seen before from the last time we've went out camping here. So I just agreed and just followed him deeper into the woods. Eventually, though, I started feeling very wrong. I started feeling like we were in some kind of danger, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Remember, I was a kid. But still, something was off. And I think my brother noticed it too, because I noticed his posture changed as we walked deeper. The weirdest part about it was when everything became eerily silent in the woods. Usually there's rodents and things moving around and stuff like that, but I remember at one particular time that we were walking in there, the only thing I could hear was ourselves. Everything else was dead silent. And that was basically my breaking point as a 10-year-old kid, because let's just face it, we're deep in the woods, everything becomes quiet, I'm starting to get freaked out, and plus, it's hotter than Hades out there. It was so humid, we were dripping with sweat in the shade. I was done. I wanted to get back to our campsite and get something to drink. My brother didn't give me any fuss when I told him I was turning around and getting out of the woods. We started walking back in the direction from whence we came, when the noises started to pick up again. But they weren't the noises that we heard from earlier. Now the new noises that we're hearing were echoing from all around us. It sounded like something big was stepping on branches or twine, snapping them in half. I was getting completely terrified at this point because I had no idea what the heck was in those woods with us. But it wasn't just me. My brother was scared as well. He told me just to keep going and follow our tracks to get out of here. Something is in the woods with us. Usually, that's him trying to mess with me. But that day, he was completely honest. And I knew it. I heard it too. There was something indeed following us in the woods. But the noises were coming from all directions, echoing amongst the trees. We had no idea what direction this beast was even in, and that's what made things even more horrifying. Eventually, we heard the growl of something, something grunting. It wasn't anything I've ever heard before, nor my brother. We both spinned around out of complete fright, and that's when we saw it. Behind us, to the right-hand side, I'm guessing maybe 40, 50 feet away. Can't really tell. I was a 10-year-old kid. It wasn't close, but it wasn't too far off either. There was this large black dog just standing there watching us. It gripped the side of one of the bark trees like it was curious. The weirdest thing about it was it must have been leaning on the tree or standing upright on its back legs because it was really tall. That and the eyes were glowing. 
I swear to you, his eyes were red. I cannot speak for everybody else. I cannot force anyone to believe my story, nor anybody else's for that matter. But I know one thing for certain. I encountered a dogman. I encountered this dogman when I was a teenager with my family camping. This happened back in the late 90s. I was only 16 at the time. I am born and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas. If you know anything about Arkansas, then you know that they have a lot of mythologies and cryptids themselves. And unfortunately for us, Dogman is one of them. You see, wolves aren't really a main source of canine out here. There's red wolves out here and there's coyotes, but outside of that, that's it. But the only thing that is tall, black, and handsome would have to be Mike Coulter. If not, then it had to be some type of black bear or something like that. But that's not what I saw. I was camping with my family. It was a typical weekend as it usually is. People from Arkansas, they like the outdoors. And they make it known too. There's parts of Arkansas that are very rednecky and things like that where people are hunting and whatnot. It's just part of our culture. I was just hiking in the woods with my younger sister at the time. Like I said, this was in the late 90s. I was an older teenager and she had just turned 13, so I was dealing with the whole pre-teen attitude, if you know what I mean. Those of you that have siblings and go through puberty and the whole process of teenageism, it sucks. She was the type of kid that never wanted to go outside. She didn't want to go hiking. She didn't want to go camping. She just wanted to sit on her computer all day and chit-chat with people on AOL and things like that. Realistically, it was a good thing that we went camping. It got us out of the house for some fresh air, for some new scenery. And it gave her something else to do for once. Anyways, my parents had everything set up. We had already had lunch that afternoon. And I told my sister I wanted her to walk with me and explore the area. She denied the proposal at first, but my mom insisted, so she obliged. So all of you that don't know about Arkansas, we got the Ozarks out here. We got some serious forests and landscape out here. We got some areas out here that you just don't want to go to, in all honesty. Uh, but it's beautiful, nonetheless. So let's get straight to the point. We were walking on this hiking trail that was on the outskirts of the camping site. There was this wood line that was on the right-hand side that had this dark little opening. You could totally tell it was some man-made trail, and we, well, I wanted to go explore it. I remember stopping in my tracks and pointing to it to my sister and telling her, Hey, check it out. She wasn't interested nonetheless, but either way, she went with me. She couldn't leave my side. When we first approached it, it was so narrow, there was no way we could walk side by side on this man-made little darkness. So, I went first and she followed behind. She complained about how dark it was and we're probably going to walk through some spider webs and we're going to have spiders in our hair and things like that and I just told her to shut up, plain and simple. You're with me, you can't leave my side, mom's rules, shut up. We kind of had a little argument, but I don't remember everything that was said. But eventually, she did shut up and she just followed me into the woods, regardless of how she felt. A part of me wished I would have listened to her, because none of this would have ever happened. 
as we were just carrying on on the trail, getting deeper and the deeper into no man's land on a trail that we had never seen before. I noticed that the temperature had dropped fairly quickly, and Arkansas gets pretty hot during the summertime, so that's telling you that something is wrong. You'd think that my spidey sense would have been alerted, but it really wasn't. Not at that exact moment, at least. However, my spidey sense completely turned on when we heard the howls. That scared the living crap out of me. I know what a coyote sounds like, and there's not too many red wolves in this area anyways, if any. It sounded really close, and that worried me for my sister more than myself. I told my sister not to worry about it, it's just some wild dogs. I told her to turn around, and we started walking back in the direction we came with her now in front. She was pretty spooked, but she was like half my size at the time, so... I was basically crawling, telling her to go faster, let's get out of here. Eventually, she picked up the pace when we heard the snapping sounds from our left. A bored little walk ended up turning into a full-on speed walk. I know you might think, why weren't you guys running like bloody hell? Well, you can't. It was so thick and so narrow and vines and twigs and branches were everywhere in your face and you didn't want to trip on overgrown roots. So we sped walk. That was the safest and most accurate thing to do at that very moment. At least we thought so at least. The faster we ran out, the closer this thing seemed like it was getting as we could hear its heavy breathing getting closer and closer from behind us. I eventually screamed to run and we said screw it and we just ran as fast as we could. Thank God we didn't trip on anything else. If so, we would have had a different story tonight. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
When I was 17, me and my family were camping over at the Cherokee Lakes Campground in Missouri. They had a pool, a place where you could go fishing, they had RV hookups, as well as tents. It really was a pretty cool facility. They even had some picnic benches out on some of the spots. It was really nice. I remember it was summer break from school. My family wanted to just get away for a little bit. Even though we didn't live terribly far from the campgrounds, I think it was the fact that they just wanted to get towards the outdoors was the whole point. Just to do something out of the norm that they normally don't do. My family owned a small little 24-foot RV. They rarely ever used it. I swear it sat on the side of the house for at least 10 years before they decided to do anything with it as far as camping-wise. And that's when we took it over to that campsite. My family had planned to stay out there for four days. Thursday through Sunday, to be exact. My dad is a pretty heavy fisherman type of guy. I never really liked it too much, but when he would invite me, I would go sometimes, I remember, when I was a teenager. My mom, on the other hand, she could care less. She'd rather just hang out on the lawn chair and read her book. That's basically what she did from what I could remember. I remember I was hanging out with my dad that evening. We were sitting in our lawn chairs sipping on sodas at the edge of the water line with our fishing poles reeled out. I didn't catch anything that I could remember. Nor did I want to. Whenever we caught anything, it was just flipping around and every time you tried to grab it, it'd slip out of your hands, blood spraying all over your hands and your shirt and your face. I'd rather not. But I think for the peace and quiet just to spend some quality time with my dad alone was in itself nice. My dad was rarely ever home during a regular work week, so this was special. He was rarely home for dinners, and half the time he was gone before I even woke up to go to school. So you could kind of say that camping and fishing was kind of our thing. I remember we had already eaten dinner. He wanted to fish until the stars came out. We had an early dinner. The sun was starting to set, so the sunset was gorgeous when we had had our dinner. He grabbed the poles, he grabbed the bait, and he ushered for me to help him with the ice chest, and we proceeded over to walk in the direction where the water was. Once we set everything up, we just casted our lines and sat back and relaxed. Don't really recall what time it was when I saw it. It came out of nowhere. It was already starting to get pretty dark out, and the stars were starting to peek through the sky. The moon was an early bird. The moon was showing itself before it had even gotten dark, so go figure. It was pretty silent. Even the neighbors weren't loud at this point. There's just something very relaxing about fishing. I don't know what it is, but it's definitely a relaxation thing for myself at least. I like it now, and I've been fishing off and on with my father ever since. So there we were. We were just sipping on soda and chowing down on some potato chips. Actually, now that I think back at it, it was one of those kettle jalapeno bags. Those are our favorites. Eventually, I'm not sure how much time had passed, but I had to go to the bathroom. I told my dad I'd be right back, got out of my lawn chair, made a left-hand turn, started walking down the hill towards that pit bathroom. Oh, God, how I dreaded those. They were absolutely disgusting. So I handled my business, wrapped things up in the little pit of doom, opened the door and started walking back in the direction where the lawn chairs were at the edge of the water where my dad and I were fishing. At this point, it was pretty much dark outside, but I had my phone on me and yeah, that was that. A couple of minutes had passed and I finally reached the area where we were both sitting, but my dad was gone. The lawn chairs were in place, the poles were laying on the ground, 
The ice chest was still open on the right-hand side next to his side on the right. But my dad was gone. Just two lawn chairs and all of our equipment still there. I called out to my dad, but I got no reply. The night was quiet. I got a tingle down the back of my spine. My dad just wouldn't take off like that. I know I spent a pretty hot minute in the bathroom, but still, he wouldn't just leave me and leave all his stuff around. Did something happen to my dad? I remember thinking. I didn't freak out about it that much. I wasn't really too concerned. Spare the moment. I started walking around and just checking to see if he was just in a nearby area or something. After a couple of minutes of looking, I started walking back in the direction where we had originally set up camp for the whole fishing ordeal at the edge of the water where all our stuff was at. And that's when I heard the sounds again. But this time, it was much louder. On the right-hand side, there was a ton of trees that were close to the water, but still far off in the distance. That's when I saw these glowing red eyes just staring directly back at me. I barely saw it at first because I wasn't really directly looking in that direction. I was just going to start gathering our things and start bringing it back to the actual campsite where my mom was at. I figured it was already dark anyway, she's probably going to be pissed. But when I saw those eyes, there was no looking away. It was almost memorizing. I've never seen red glowing eyes before on any animal that I've ever seen in real life or on television. It didn't move a muscle. It didn't make a sound. It was making shuffling sounds in the woods and that's what made me look in that direction after all. But once I caught eye contact with that thing, whatever it was, I couldn't look away. It was like looking into Pennywise's deadlights or something. I was completely frozen. Whatever it was, had to have been big. Judging by where the eyes were actually located amongst the trees and the brush, that thing was definitely taller than I was. I remember just grabbing the poles and just the ice chest. I left the chairs there and I just hightailed it back to the campsite where mom was. I was kind of freaked out. I mean, I wasn't freaked out like a horror movie freaked out, but I knew something was wrong and I just wanted to get to my mom. I dropped everything off, talked to my mom about it. I was pretty much out of breath by that time. You know, she told me to calm down, tell her everything that happened, start from the beginning and things like that. And of course, I did just that. She looked at me in shock and confusion. I'm not sure if she truly honestly believed me after all. But then I was asking, where's dad? Where's dad? Then she started to look like she was actually starting to believe me after all. Like, here we go. Our kid's saying that they're seeing some monster in the woods with glowing eyes and... But where's my husband? You know, that kind of look. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Nobody dies in this story. My dad actually came out moments later walking down the hill at a nice normal pace as if nothing had happened whatsoever. According to him, nothing did. He was actually concerned why I'd left the lawn chairs out by the water. I tried to explain to him that I couldn't find him and the thing that I saw in the brush. Needless to say, my dad was in the male restroom the whole time. We love hearing stories about people who were nearly taken, people who barely survived their creepy encounters. But today's episode is a darker one, featuring stories centered around people who allegedly did go missing. Sometimes it's more than people just getting lost. Sometimes humans and supernatural forces alike enjoy taking our loved ones forever. Enjoy these allegedly true scary stories. Now, Let's begin.
The Missing Boy and the Pale Man From Ren is Lost I'm half Native American and grew up in an isolated town that boasted an impressive population of 96 people in total. In my beliefs and the beliefs of my community and family, there are benevolent spirits and there are malevolent spirits. Some are human and others are not. Many go unnoticed by people blending into the background. Some are retold as legends and stories and cautionary tales and some become notoriously known on the internet, like the Skinwalker and Wendigo. This story is not about Skinwalkers or Wendigo. Or maybe it is. I honestly don't know what it was that I saw and felt, but I know for certain that whatever it was, it was the thing that took a young boy from our community. Whether you believe my story or not, it doesn't change anything, unfortunately. The boy is still missing and presumed dead and has been for well over a decade now. Before I share with you the details of the case, you need to understand how things were where I grew up. Calling us a rural town was putting it politely. We were extremely remote. The next nearest town was well over an hour away. My town was mostly made up of other people in the tribe. It was this small logging town tucked deep into the mountains. Everyone knew each other, and everyone knew the same local superstitions and stories. There were quite a few unusual stories surrounding the forest in our town, some of them involving inhuman spirits. I had explored those forests since I was very small, probably too small. I have memories of being as young as three or four years old, and being deep in the woods alone, but feeling perfectly safe, as if there was something in the forest that was protecting me, and I'd return to it time and time again to feel safe, safer than I did at home with my neglectful and abusive family. There were other things in the forest that I can't really describe, but when you lived there, you learned over time on how to read the forest, understanding when it was safe to be in it, or if you needed to keep your wits about you. Every once in a while, you could feel something on the dark edges waiting there, as if needing an invitation to come closer. Sometimes, that dark presence would follow. There were many times when I was older and riding my bike along the old logging trails where I felt it there. It was always this familiar feeling, but something dark, something inappropriate. Sometimes you could hear it call your name, but I never answered it when it did. Some instinct in me told me that I should never acknowledge it, never speak to it, and absolutely never invite it closer. And then, as soon as it had appeared, it was gone, and that feeling of the goodness in the forest would return. This was kind of the usual thing for most of us living out there, especially the loggers. Just one of those things that we knew was unnatural, but something we lived with, keeping it on the outskirts until someone invited it in. The Boy Who Went Missing 
I can't be sure of what happened on his end. I can only tell you about this case from my experience with it, and from what others have told me, and what I later felt and saw. This boy went missing on a winter's day, where almost two feet of snow had fallen overnight. He uncharacteristically left his home that morning and simply disappeared. It was cause for immediate panic, and a local search and rescue party had mobilized before law enforcement could reach us. The boy had suffered from health problems and required medication to function correctly, medication that he uncharacteristically did not take with him. The last eyewitness who saw him was able to give a direction of where he traveled, and his footprints were found in the snow fairly quickly. This is where things begin to become strange. At this point, law enforcement had arrived and had brought along more search and rescue operatives, as well as search and rescue canines and rugged terrain gear, including snowmobiles and climbing equipment to navigate some of the harsh terrain. They followed the boys' footprints off-road and through terrain they had extreme difficulty navigating through, even with all that gear. And in some cases, it was impossible to get through. And yet the boys' footprints persisted on for miles, until search and rescue operatives took note of something disturbing. At a certain point, seemingly out of nowhere, the boys' footprints were joined by the footprints of someone, or something else. They were described as long strides, that looked as if the boy were being led deeper in, and then both sets of footprints vanished for miles in the snow. There was just nothing. Several miles away, a secondary team who had gone ahead in the boy's direction of travel radioed in that they had found the footprints again, and were able to validate them as his by the unique design on the sole of his shoes. Again, the same thing happened. The footprints began as only his, and were eventually joined by something else. And then, once more, they vanished into nothing. The search had begun in the morning, and went on well into the night. It wasn't until the next day that one of the boy's shoes and his hoodie washed up where the river emptied out. His body was never found. Shortly after, he was presumed possibly deceased from exposure, but the search would continue for a long time. At this point, you're probably wondering how my first story and this connect. Remember, you get to decide what you accept as the truth, but just because you accept one truth in one way does not mean it's not true in another way. Earlier in my story, I mentioned that locals could feel the forest and things present in it, including that dark presence that lingered just out of reach, following, speaking our names. After the boy disappeared, this thing was no longer on the outskirts. It had become the forest. I mentioned when I was smaller, I would go into the forest to feel safe, to feel secure. Shortly after the boy went missing, I went to visit my secret place in the woods 
like I had thousands of times before. But I... Well, I couldn't. I got to the edge of our property, and I could not will my body to pass through our gate and into the forest. My body was frozen and trembling. My heartbeat was so loud it was all I could hear, and my legs felt like jello. This suffocating sense of doom felt as if it was crushing the life out of me. To put it in layman's terms, I felt like if I were to go into that forest at that time, I was going to die. That I would also be taken. Those words were being forced into my brain from something I couldn't see, but something that felt familiar, yet nauseating. My instincts immediately told me that it was that thing I'd felt so often as a child, but that it did not need my permission or anyone else's permission anymore to be there. It made the forest change from feeling peaceful and alive to sick and decaying, a stagnant place where no light could reach anymore. I tried to go back in several other times, and I had the same reaction each time. Even my ex-husband, when I took him there, had a similar reaction, despite never giving him any backstory about the place. He was a firefighter who specialized in wildland and forest fires, and he even stopped at the gate, silently staring into the trees. I could even see goosebumps rising up on the back of his neck. Even he said that he didn't know what it was, but it felt like he was going to die if he went in there. Strange things kept happening after the boy went missing. Certain areas of the road through the mountain that were considered fairly safe before suddenly had accident after accident, with most of the victims saying things like there was someone in the road they were trying to avoid hitting, or that they just lost complete control of their car. People drink a lot in this area, and the sad truth is that a lot of those also drive themselves home after drinking. So a lot of people kind of shrugged off the increase in car accidents, chalking it up to the local cafe finally getting their liquor license. I thought this was closer to the truth myself, until it happened to me. I... I saw him. I know it was him, or it, or whatever it was, because when I saw him, I felt the same suffocating feeling of dread and nausea that I had before. I didn't ask to see him, and I wasn't even thinking about him when it happened. I was driving home from work, and it was dark. I rounded a corner, and I saw what I first thought to be a tall, thin, pale, and possibly nude man standing next to the road sign. I immediately glanced in the mirror as I slowed down to see what I was looking at, to see if he was hurt or if he needed help. It was below freezing, and he looked nude at first glance. What I saw, I sometimes still can't accept. It was humanoid, definitely humanoid, but there was something not right about it, and the more I looked at it, 
the more things screamed that it was not a human being. The skin was extremely pale, but also very leathery. The arms and legs were simply both too long, and the fingers way too long. The hands and feet of this thing were black, like they had been caked in ash and coal from the fireplace. It had no hair, it had no ears, except what might have been holes where the ears once were. Where its eyes should have been was just empty, but still reflected light from my car, similar to when you shine light on a cat or dog's eyes in the park. There were no lips or nose. The mouth was just gaping open and closed, and was covered in what I hoped was mud, or maybe charcoal. I didn't know what I was looking at, but I knew it wasn't human. I got the heck out of there as fast as I could. It wasn't until I got home and sat down to draw what I saw, so I could see if others had encounters with this thing, that I realized that its height had to have been at minimum seven or eight feet, since our road signs are built a lot taller. They can still be seen when we get a lot of snow. Online, the search results for what I saw came up with most results suggesting the rake, a supposedly fictional ghostly cryptid that I'd never heard of before this. But the supposed images I saw of it were strikingly similar to the thing I saw. Similarly, those features can also fit a true Wendigo. Sorry if this chaps some people's rears, but Wendigo and Algonquin lore do not look like gangly men wearing a deer skull on their head. But the geographical location wasn't right. Even though I'm from one of the Algonquin tribes where that lore originated from. I've since moved out of my childhood hometown, but this whole event is something that has stayed with me in the back of my mind since then. I can't prove it. But my gut instinct tells me that whatever that thing was, it was so desperate to be invited in. It preyed on the missing boy and took him from us. A catalyst to its entry, I suppose. She loved to swim. From Palace. Many years ago, there was this girl who loved to swim. She would stay in the water for as long as she could, no matter how wrinkly her skin would become. She could stay for hours in the water, if she was allowed to. Her peers, classmates, or friends, and family nicknamed her Water Rat, a much-used figurative expression in the country she lived in at the time, for people there to describe anyone who enjoyed swimming a lot. Her parents would sometimes joke that if she stayed too long in the water, that she would stay wrinkly forever. Let's call her Sarah. This is not her real name, but her story is. Sarah was considered a normal girl. She did well in school, even though she had some difficulties and needed guidance now and again. Nothing too much out of the ordinary. The girl had friends, although not at school. So at school, she spent all her time learning and doing schoolwork. Any time she had left after school, she was free to do whatever she wanted to, be it meeting with her friends or swimming. 
Her favorite thing to do was to see how long she could hold her breath for by swimming from one end of the pool or lake to the other side. Sarah would keep going until she was satisfied enough that she did her best. Other things she enjoyed in the water were tricks, such as doing as many underwater forward rolls as possible before needing to get up for air or doing underwater handstands. One day, she was alone, swimming at the beach nearby where she and her parents lived. It was during the summer vacation and most people left to celebrate their vacations elsewhere, spending time at foreign beaches, most likely. Sarah didn't mind. She enjoyed spending time by herself. Being with friends was always nice, but as an introvert, she got exhausted from spending time with other people, no matter how kind or helpful they were. As a person, she needed time to herself to recharge. This was such a time. She swam and swam and swam some more. The girl eventually lost track of time, as was normally the case for her when she went swimming. Sarah did some of her favorite tricks in the water. This was the first time she was allowed to swim by herself. Her parents thought she was getting old enough to start venturing out alone. A young woman like yourself should be able to make her own plans without your mom or dad by now. You're barely a child anymore. Well, you'll always be our child, of course. Her mother said while hugging her before she left. Sarah remembered her mom's smile. Happy her daughter was becoming mature concerned that might be going too fast for either of them. Soon it was beginning to get dark. That was her cue to get out of the water and head home. Sarah couldn't remember the last time she'd swam so long. She checked the time. Her phone had stopped working. Sarah thought this odd as she had fully charged it beforehand, but she didn't think too much more of it. The battery might have simply just died, or something like that. Either way, she would have to check it at home sometime later, when she got back. The young woman hoped she wasn't going to be too late. After having almost run the entire way back home, Sarah got out her keys to the house and put the front door key in the lock. She opened the door, closed it behind her, and yelled out, Mom? Dad? I'm back. Sarah heard shuffling from upstairs and from the kitchen. Her mother greeted her as she came from upstairs. It is way too late. Where have you been? Her mom stopped right in her tracks halfway coming down the stairs. Her face started to go pale. Honey, where did you put the spices I like? I can't find them. A man's voice came from the kitchen. It was Sarah's dad preparing that evening's meal. Mom? What's wrong? Sarah tried to ask. She was worried. She had never seen her mom like this. Honey? Sarah's father inquired nicely from the kitchen again. When he didn't get a response, he decided to investigate what kept his wife. He opened the kitchen door and entered the hallway, and his jaw dropped. A sudden rush of fear and anger overwhelmed him. Who are you? Get out of this house or I'll call the police. As he said this, Sarah's mom cried and screamed. Dad? Why? What? 
The girl tried to ask what was wrong, what was going on. She didn't get the chance to, as her father was beginning to charge at her. Sarah jumped out of the house, crying. Don't you dare come here again! The front door slammed shut after her dad had shouted his final words at her. Sarah could not understand what happened. Thoughts were running through her mind. She wept while walking the streets, trying to figure out what to do. Why had her mom looked at her that way? Why had her father suddenly turned to rage, seemingly intent on killing her? Never before had she seen such fear and rage from either of her parents. I hadn't seen Sarah in years. Her parents had reported her as missing. They'd witnessed a strange incident the day she had disappeared, but other than that, the police had nothing to go on. Sarah used to be my friend when we were kids. I was one of her few friends. It must have been about six years after she'd gone missing when I got a strange phone call, and I didn't know what to make of it. The voice on the other end was unclear but very distinct. They claimed to be able to clarify what had happened to Sarah. That's when I was told everything I just told you. I asked how this person knew all this. I was told if I wanted to know what happened to Sarah, if I wanted closure, I would have to go to the beach near Sarah's place the next evening. I had to come alone. It sounded shady, but I needed answers just in case I informed one of my siblings where I was going. I'd made arrangements with my brother on the off chance I would not contact him by midnight. The following day, it was nearly time for me to head to the beach. Everything was set. Everything arranged. I sat there at the beach, waiting. Daylight faded to dusk, which turned into night. Tiredness seeped in, and sometimes I felt my head bounce around. I was trying my best to stay awake. Luckily, I managed to keep myself awake enough. Eventually, I heard splashing. I got up and headed toward the water. The moon had appeared and shone some dim light across the darkness of the beach and the water of the vast ocean. Near where I'd heard the splashing, I saw a round shape bobbing in the water. Hello? I called out thinking it might be someone out at sea. It seemed dangerous to me someone would be swimming right now in the sea with it being so dark. As a response, the round shape came slightly closer to my position. I was a bit anxious, as I didn't know what to expect. But if it was a person I managed to get out of harm's way, then I was happy enough. The round shape stopped not too far away from where I was standing. It was still in the water, but it was rising up. A short, hunched figure was standing close to the shoreline. By the looks of it, it was human, I thought. Who are you? Are you the one who phoned me about Sarah? I asked the human figure. Yes. An old, crackling voice replied. It did sound similar to the voice I'd heard over the phone earlier. There was a long, uncomfortable pause before the crackling voice continued. The Sarah you knew is gone. What did you do with her? 
I demanded, suddenly, in frustration, surprising not only myself with my tone of aggression, but the other person in the water, too. I saw the shape flinch in response. I... I don't know. They replied. What do you mean you don't know? I asked, a bit more gentle this time. The shape stepped closer to me, slowly. Some clouds began to pass over the moon, so I could not make out the person's face when they came closer. They were perhaps only two steps away from me. Just know, Sarah is doing well. Everyone has been missing her. Where is she? Let her come home. I said, firmly, demanding it, but I felt rather hopeless. She... she can't come home. I... this was a mistake. I'm sorry. Just know she is okay. They turned around and began to head back into the water. I rushed towards them, grabbing their shoulder. Then I jumped back and immediately let go. Their shoulder felt strange, almost as if it was all dried up. That made no sense. They had just come from the water. The person turned back around to face me. Just as they did, the moon's light was shining again as the clouds had fully passed. Their face, it was all wrinkly. It barely looked human. I was too focused on their face to take note of the rest of their appearance. I did not yell and who or whatever they were had seemed to appreciate I hadn't backed out in horror or shock. Sarah will be happy to know you took the news so well. Thank you. The voice sounded calm and somewhat satisfied. They retreated back into the water. I cannot say for sure I know who or what they were, but whatever happened to Sarah had changed her life forever. Maybe I met Sarah that night. Maybe not. The story I got over the phone, I believed more than ever now that I'd experienced this. Whoever or whatever that was, I have a feeling that they or Sarah got more closure than I did and I hope Sarah is doing well. Gilgo Beach Serial Killer From Anonymous When I was 18 years old in the late 90s, my best friend Nicole and I liked to visit Gilgo Beach during the summer. Gilgo Beach was one of many Long Island beaches, but we liked this one because it encompassed both a beach and boat marina with an outdoor tiki-style bar. This outdoor bar is exactly the place where this strange encounter occurred. Nicole and I decided to take a break from sunbathing and took the 10-minute walk to the outdoor bar to get some sodas. Upon arrival, we sat down and waited our turn to order sodas. The area was crowded with beachgoers and boat owners who parked their boats at the marina. There were probably about two dozen boats docked. People were drinking and mingling. Nicole was already flirting with an older gentleman, 
who talked about his boat and how he would love it if she joined him on his boat. I, on the other hand, was more interested in quenching my thirst rather than mingling. But that's when a 40-something serious white man sat down next to me. Something about his vibe gave me the creeps. The creepy and sinister look he gave before he even spoke to me permanently embedded his face in my memory. You know, you shouldn't get on the boats here. Girls get on these boats all the time and go missing, never to be heard from again. He said with a small smirk. I rolled my eyes and replied, I wasn't planning to get onto any of these boats. But tell me this, why haven't I heard anything about all these missing girls on the news? I read the newspaper every day and have never read one story about a missing girl that was last seen on Gilgo Beach. He responded and said, <laughs> Because nobody knows about it yet. Then he got up and walked off. That comment always puzzled me for years until over ten years later, when police discovered multiple bodies found buried on Gilgo Beach. They're still looking for the Gilgo Beach serial killer. They suspect it was a serial killing team, which includes a doctor and a police sergeant, but could not prove it, so they're free to this day. But the scariest moment for me was when they showed me the pictures of the suspected doctor and police sergeant duo. The man that warned me in a sinister-like way to not get on the boat, or I would disappear, was the suspected police sergeant. I will never forget that creepy face and warning with a sinister undertone.